It is often said that when a hive of bees lose a queen bee, it needs to replace the queen bee in that hive if it is to survive. That is, the colony of bee will not survive without a new queen bee. But you can't simply go and get a new queen bee and insert that bee, that new queen bee, into the hive. If you do so, the other bees that are in the hive will kill this new queen bee because they will realize that this bee, this queen bee is a foreigner and they will kill her. The only way you can inject a new queen bee in that hive is that you need to cover the new queen bee in something like sugar or candy so that by the time the other bees get to her, she has already taken on the scent of the hive. They will acknowledge her as one of their own and she will be spared. Now just like a queen bee cannot enter into a hive and survive without special covering, no person will be able to enter into the presence of God on the day of judgment and survive without special covering, that is, without the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ and the righteousness which he gives. The gospel that Paul preaches is particularly about this covering, this covering of righteousness that sinners receive by faith in Jesus Christ, which enables them to stand before God. It is the, at the very heart and central message of the gospel that God has provided a righteousness for us. We call that justification by which we are able to stand before God. This is the gospel that Paul preached, a gospel for which he contends in the book of Galatians. It is a gospel that he defends even against the Apostle Peter. Because as we have been reading through Galatians, Paul tells us of an encounter that he had with Peter at Antioch. When Peter would eat with, with, with Gentile Christians, but when Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem, Peter no longer wanted to eat and withdrew from eating with Gentile Christians, ostensibly because they were not circumcised. And the Jewish Christians, the Judaizers, insisted that if one were to be a Christian, they must keep the law, including circumcision. And Peter, withdrawing from them, suggested that these Gentile Christians were not fully accepted as those whom God has saved. And Paul, in verses 15 and 16, outlines the gospel that he preached. The gospel that even Peter himself agreed and accepted. This gospel states that a man or woman, any person, no person is justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And he says this knowing that a man is not justified, does not receive, does not have the righteousness of Christ credited to him by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And so Paul says that we understand this. 
that we can only stand in the presence of God because we have received the righteousness, the righteousness that comes from God by faith and not by the law. Now having said that the gospel at its core is this message of righteousness or justification which God credits to us, Paul anticipates in verse 17 a possible retort. One of his critics may have said to the apostle Paul, if you are proclaiming a gospel which teaches that righteousness comes only by faith and not by keeping the law, then are you not saying that Christ is the one who promotes and encourages sin? And Paul takes on this objection, this putative objection, and he resists it in the strongest language. God forbid, let that never be so. That is impossible. The Apostle Paul counters by saying that if he rebuilds the things that he seeks to destroy, that is, if he returns to the law, having received God's gift of righteousness or justification by faith in Christ, that would make him a sinner. It is by going back to the law that he becomes a sinner. He goes on in verse 18 to explain or rather in verse 19 to explain why he cannot revert to the law. He says that he died to the law. Look at verse 19. He says, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I, through the law, died to the law. What he means there is that he died to the law, through the law, that is, through the law and its punishment of Christ. He died to the law, and he died to the law, through the law, through his punishment of Christ, that he might live to God. He then goes on to explain what he means by dying to the law. He says in these memorable words, in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And though, though these words, I have been crucified with Christ, comes in our English translation, verse 20, it suggests in the original that they are part of verse 19. And so Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. But that is linked to what he says earlier, that he died to the law. He explains that he died to the law in terms of being crucified with Christ. This language of being crucified with Christ introduces in the argument over justification by faith, a major theme, the theme of union with Christ. Union with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Let me see if I can summarize how Paul gets here in his argument. He's arguing that justification by faith in Christ does not lead a person to live a life of sin because the person who is justified, that is declared legally righteous before God, is at the same time united to Christ, lives in union with Christ. That individual, therefore, is justified and brought into a saving union with Christ. It is this subject that I want us to concentrate upon today. This subject of our union with Christ. Paul says, 
I have been crucified with Christ. I want us to, particularly in verse 20, pull out some of the major statements that Paul would have us comprehend regarding this matter of union with Christ. First, to be in union with Christ involves participation in the crucifixion or in the death of Christ. Whatever else you understand by union with Christ, for an individual to be in union with Christ means that person is involved or has participation in the crucifixion and the death of Christ. Paul says, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. This union with Christ described by J.K.S. Reed in his wonderful book, Our Life in Christ, says that this union with Christ is the most profound and intimate fellowship that the living Christ has with a Christian. It is the most profound and intimate fellowship between the living Christ and the Christian. We need to know that union with Christ is not a minor theme in Pauline writing. It is one of the pillars of Paul's theology. In fact, Paul talks about our union with Christ in terms of the phrase, in Christ, in Christo. It appears ubiquitously. It is widespread in Pauline writing, in Christ. The Apostle Paul uses this as the characteristic expression of our being joined to Christ, in Christ. You find it, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, if, if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. Paul uses this over and over in his epistles, in Christ, in Christo. He uses other phrases to speak of our union with Christ. He speaks of in him. We, we take, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul says that Christ became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in Christ, in him, are parallel expressions that refer to the fact that we have been joined to Christ, that we are united to Christ. But Paul also uses other expressions to talk of our union with Christ. He can speak of not only in Christ, in him, but he can speak of with him. And this is what he says here in verse 20. I have been crucified with him or with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. The verb crucified, sunesturomai, is a compound word. It is with and crucified. I am crucified with him. This is also a statement then of the believer's union with Christ. And the verb occurs in the perfect tense, which speaks of something that occurred in the past but also continues today. So what he means is I was crucified in the past, I am now crucified with him, and I will be crucified with him yet in the future. But that is a language of union with Christ. Now, 
Let us be very clear, and I, I don't think I really need to say this, but I think I must say it, just, just for clarification's sake. That when Paul says he's, that, that I'm crucified with Christ, he certainly doesn't mean that he was a third person with Jesus Christ on the day of his crucifixion. We know that there were two people who were crucified on the cross, two thieves. So we don't think that Paul had a third cross and he was somehow there crucified on the day of crucifixion. Paul is not referring then to a physical crucifixion. But that does not mean that this statement is meaningless. Paul is speaking then of his crucifixion with Christ as having occurred not physically, but objectively in the cross. Objectively in the cross. Now, I, I, I know that this needs unpacking, and so I'm going to try to do that. What Paul is talking about here is really covenantal language. I am crucified with Christ. He's using covenantal language. You and I, we think very often in individualistic terms. You know, this is my clothes. This is my job. This is my children. We think primarily in individualistic terms. But the Bible often speaks of man as a corporate entity, as being in Adam or being in Christ. Adam was the great head and representative of mankind. All men are born in Adam objectively and representatively. He was our representative. And what Adam did affected us. That is why we are first and foremost sinners. We are sinners not only in the sense because we actually physically sin, but we are sinners because we inherited Adam's sin. Why did we inherit it? Because Adam was our representative. He was, he was our head. What he did affects us. If our mayor or prime minister goes abroad and does something terrible and it's splashed on CNN, he runs away with the hotel towels or something like that, steals hotel goods. It is not just he who would be embarrassed, but, dare say, all of us. Because he represents us. Adam was our great head. What Adam did, we also did in him. Likewise, the Bible says that Christ is also a second Adam. Our spiritual head, that we are in Christ. And therefore, in some respect, what occurred to Christ occurred to us. And in fact, Paul speaks of this union with Adam and union with Christ in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For instance, he says, For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, that is through Adam, through Adam's offense, death reigned, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Adam brought death and death reigned over all of us who were in him. And therefore, Christ in whom we are, he brings grace and righteousness to reign over us because we are in him. When Paul therefore says, I am crucified in Christ, he's thinking of Christ as his head, that he is crucified objectively in Christ so that Christ's death becomes his death, that he died. 
To be in union with Christ involves participation in the crucifixion. That Christ's death on the cross was in a real sense our death. Now Paul can refer to this. The fact that we were in Christ in his death when he says, for the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge that one died for all, therefore all died. That is, Christ died for all, for all his people, therefore all his people have died in him. But when did they die in him? They died in him at the cross. His death was our death. Now, Paul speaks of us as dying and being raised with Christ. In terms of our conversion in Romans chapter 6, we died with him and we were raised with him and baptism is a picture of our death. But Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. He's saying to us that union with Christ involves participation in the death of Christ. Now, we further need to unpack this. When Paul says he's crucified with Christ, it means that he died to at least four profound realities. It means, first of all, that he died in relationship to sin. In Romans 6, he could say, How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Romans 6, verse 2. He died to the control and the power of sin. Believers and Paul, by dying with Christ, not only died to sin, but died in relation to the flesh. So Paul says, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires in Galatians 5, 24. Thirdly, dying with Christ means dying in relation to the power of the world or the age. Paul says, for God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and here it is and I to the world. So to be crucified with Christ means that we died in relation to sin, died in relation to the flesh, and died in relation to the power of the age, to this world. But to be crucified with Christ means that we died in relation to the law. Paul therefore could say in verse 19, For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. He restates this. In Romans 7 verse 4, he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be married to another. To him was raised from the dead, that we should be a fruit to God. Paul means, therefore, that because he's united with Christ, he is therefore crucified with him, and he died to the law. Paul is not suggesting that he's lawless. He's not suggesting that he could live in sin, but he's simply saying that the law, as an era, no longer rules over him. He does not live under the dictates and the condemnation and the judgment of the law. I am crucified with Christ. It therefore speaks of participation in his death, and that means death to sin, death to the flesh, death to the world and death particularly to the reign and to the condemnation of the law. I am crucified with Christ means participation in the death of Christ. Union with Christ means participation in the death of Christ. But there's more regarding union with Christ. To be in union with Christ 
indicates that the living Christ indwells the believer. For Paul then moves on to give us a consequence of his crucifixion with Christ. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This then is a momentous statement of his union with Christ. He says, it is no longer I that live. Now, he's not suggesting that that his personality has somehow been erased, that he no longer as a human entity exists. When he says, it is now no longer I who live, I am crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, he means that the old person, the man that he was in Adam, dominated by self-righteousness and self-reliance, and self-direction, that old person in Adam no longer lives. That in effect, he is no longer Saul the Pharisee. He is no longer one who trusts in his own righteousness to save himself. He is a new person. He has put, on, put off the old man according to Ephesians 4 and 22. And he's put on the new man. He's a different person. He's a brand new person in Christ. To be in union with Christ is not only to be in participation with his death, but it is to be indwelt by Christ. And this is what Paul gets at as he now comes to the core of union with Christ in this verse. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Here, here is the nub of his union with Christ. Christ living in him. Christ indwelling him. Union with Christ involves at its core the indwelling Christ. He tells us on a few occasions that Christ dwells in us. Look at Romans 8 verse 10. He says, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Right into the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, examine yourself as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Christ is in you unless you are disqualified? To the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 19, my little children for whom I labor in childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So that union with Christ means that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. It means that Christ lives in me and I live in him. The New Testament, German New Testament theologian, Adolf Diesmann, in 1892, is the first person to have identified Paul's Use widespread usage of in Christ to refer to our union with Christ. Adolf Deisman wrote in 1892 a little booklet, the New Testament formula, translated into English, the New Testament formula of in Christo or in Christ. In that work, Deisman sought to explain or to illustrate what it means for a person to be united to Christ. 
What does it mean for a person to have Christ in him and to be in Christ? And he says this. He says, just as the heir of life, just as the air of life which we breathe is in us and fill us, and at the same time we are in this air and live in this air, so he says Christ lives in us like air lives in us. And we live in him as we live in air. Christ is in me and I I'm in him. But even there, we still have not gotten to the knob of what it really means to be united with Christ. Many older theologians talk about the the union of Christ as a mythical union. And, And that perhaps has been an unhappy description because mythical suggests that which is intangible and even at times unreal. How do we then further then define this union? Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. I'm sharing in his crucifixion. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. There's a union between me and the living Christ. Christ lives in me. But how do we determine this union? It was William Perkins who was born in the early 1550s or and died in 1602, who, as a Puritan wrote, he said that union with Christ, or union rather by itself, can be seen in three terms. He says there can be a union of natures, where, for instance, or union of nature, where you have the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are nevertheless joined by one nature, one God, one spiritual essence. There's a union of nature. He says that there's also a second union, a union of person, where you and I, for instance, we have body and spirit. And yet, we are one person, a union of person. He says there's a third union that is a, a, a spiritual union, like that of the union between Christ and his church. Now, you and I might be able to offer other unions that might be applicable. But when Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, he's not suggesting that he has taken on the nature of God. He's not saying that he has become a demigod, that he shears in some sense in the essence of God. What he's simply saying is that Christ lives in him, and that union is a spiritual union. That is, in other words, it is by the Spirit that Christ lives in him. That the Spirit is the bond that unites him to Christ. Now, I want you to follow here because in our passage, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He can talk about Christ in him. But if you skip over to chapter 4 of Galatians, And verse 6, where Paul is referring now to the believer's adoption. They become heirs and sons of God. The apostle says this, And because you are sons, 
God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. Paul can therefore very easily say that Christ is in us, and then very easily say that God has sent forth the spirit of his son in us. Therefore, these two ideas are parallel. Christ in us and the spirit of Christ in us are parallel expressions. The way Christ lives in us is by his spirit. Paul does not confuse the person of the Holy Spirit and the person of the Son. They are distinct. But in a real sense, the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. You cannot divide and separate Christ and his Spirit. To have Christ in us is to have the Spirit of Christ indwelling us because the Spirit is the Spirit of God's Son. It is the Holy Spirit who mediates the presence of Christ in the church and in his people. He is the glue who cements us to Christ. So when Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, he means Christ lives in me by his spirit. This is a spiritual union because it is the spirit who connects us to Jesus. But this is a vital and dynamic union. You see, Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives. Ongoing, present, ongoing tense. Christ is living in me. It is a vital union. It is a life-giving union. Because the spirit who lives in him is the creative spirit. The one who brings new life and quickening power. And just like a branch depends upon a vine and a body upon its head. So we depend upon the life-giving Christ in us by his spirit. It means then that the life, this Christian life that Paul lives, it is not really his life. It is the life of the living Christ. It is the life of the spirit of God in him. It is the spirit of God who imparts at the very center of his being, at his, in, in his thinking, his willing and feeling that imparts to him the power to live unto God. It is the indwelling spirit in him who washes and sanctifies and justifies. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. This union then is a spiritual and a vital, it is a marital union because Christ commits all of himself in a committed intimacy to the believer. This is a continual union because Paul says Christ lives in me. My argument then is simply this, that union with Christ involves participation in the crucifixion and death of Christ. Union with Christ entails that Christ indwells us, lives in us, and does so by his spirit. But thirdly, to be in union with Christ signifies that we live out this union, we appropriate this union in the language of Anthony Hokema, we appropriate this union by faith. So Paul goes on in verse 20, he says, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live. 
but Christ lives in me. And then he goes on and says, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me or loved me and gave himself for me. Now, Paul is saying, look, I do live. I live in the flesh. Generally, Sarks in the New Testament carries a moral, negative moral tone. Paul does not use flesh, I live in the flesh, to mean that he lives in sin, but rather in this present earthly body. He says, the life that I live physically, I live by faith in the Son of God. And he's saying, therefore, that he lives out this union with Christ by faith. He lives out this union by faith. He appropriates, he takes hold of this union with Christ by the instrument of faith. If you want to have something clearer on this, that the Christian lives in union with Christ by faith, one only has to turn to Ephesians 3 verse 17. Because in Ephesians 3 verse 17, Paul is praying in the second major prayer in Ephesians, in chapter 3 verse 17, he's praying that believers would be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit in their inner beings. And then he says that he's praying not only that they may be strengthened in their inner beings by the power of God, but that, but that, that, they, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That's a, that's a significant statement. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. How does a Christian experientially live his Christian life in union with Jesus? How do we grasp this spiritual union that we have with Christ? Paul says he's praying that they may be strengthened and that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. It is by faith that we grasp and claim this union with Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul places great stress on faith. In chapter 2, verse 16, a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Now he says he lives by faith in the Son of God. And faith, then, is a gift of God. It comes by the Word of God. It comes to us by the Holy Spirit who gives us faith. And faith in, in, involves at least three elements. It involves knowledge. It involves an intellectual content. It involves agreement or consent. One must not only know the truth, but one must agree with the truth. But faith involves this crucial aspect of dependence, of reliance, of trusting in the truth of Christ. Paul says, and the life that I now live in the flesh... I live by faith. This, this is an informed faith. And it is faith in a personal object. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. In chapter 1 verse 16, Paul says that God had revealed his Son in him. He lived by faith in the revealed Christ. He lives by faith in the eternal Christ. He lives by faith in the Christ whose spirit indwells him. 
What Paul is saying is that his faith is a credible faith because it is based upon the greatest of persons, the Son of God. He says he lives by faith in the Son of God. He lives by faith in the King of kings, in the Lord of lords, in God's almighty Son. His faith, therefore, is well-placed because of the greatness of the one in whom he believes. And then he uses two participle clauses to describe the Son of God. I live by faith in the Son of God, he says, who loved me. You see, he's talking about the greatness of Christ's love. He's loved by none other than the Son of God. That the one who loved him, the one who sacrificially gave himself to him, is God Almighty's Son. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And Paul says, secondly, that this Son of God who loved me demonstrated his love by giving himself for me. Here he places the accent on the nature of Christ's love. His love is a self-giving love. He loved me and gave himself for me. Paul uses agape, love, and parodidomai to give over, to refer to the love of Christ. We read in the New Testament that Judas gave up Christ, parodidomai. We hear that the chief priest in in Luke 20, that the chief priest gave up Christ, handed him over to crucifixion. We even read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 that the father gave up the son, paradidomai. And so we read, he who did not spare his son but delivered him up for us all, that's the term, paradidomai, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? But Paul reveals, it is not merely Judas, it is not even the chief priest, it is not even the father who handed him over, but he handed himself over to death. He loved me and gave himself for me. Paul joins these two terms of loving and giving in Ephesians 5 and verse 2. Walk in love, he says, as Christ has also loved us, and here it is, and given himself, parodidomai, for us. In the same chapter of Ephesians 5, he tells us in verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved us, and here it is, and gave himself for us. Paul says, the life I live, I live by this trust, this reliance on the almighty Son of God. And this Son of God gave me an everlasting love and gave me a sacrificial love because he gave himself upper for me. Not just for my good, but gave himself for me, that is, he gave himself as a substitute in my place, in my stead. He gave himself for me. Here then is Paul's argument. He will not turn aside 
from the grace of God. He will not turn aside from a gospel that teaches that we are acceptable to God on the basis of righteousness by faith. For, for him to do so is to deny the significance of Christ's death. It is to deny him who has loved him and gave himself for him. When we think of salvation and we think of how we are saved, you and I must celebrate and rejoice in God's gift of righteousness. That you and I are justified as Christians because of what God has done for us. It must always be before us that we can never by ourselves save ourselves. That we can never do enough in this world to ever get into heaven by our own efforts. And that is why I enjoy the great Scottish hymn writer Horatius Bonar who says, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. We have no other ground of confidence. We have no other hope or assurance of salvation than in Christ's righteousness. And it must cause us to celebrate that even though we are naturally sinners, we have been declared right in the eyes of God because of Christ's righteousness. We must praise God for justification for the gift of righteousness. But we must also consider that when we are justified, we are united to Christ. This, in, this, you know, my dear friends, in large measures is indeed what it means to be a Christian. A Christian, I'm not saying it's the only definition, but a Christian is a sinner who has been joined to Christ. And that means that Christ is in us. I know we worry about all kinds of stuff. We worry about the strike by teachers. We, we, we worry about our work and we worry about all kinds of matters. And many of these things are important. But you must never lose sight that the greatest reality that you can ever experience in this life is to have the Son of God living in you, that you are walking about daily, bearing about in your body God himself, that you are the temple of the living Christ. Paul says, the life that I live, I live it by faith, but this life, this life is a life that has been given to him by the indwelling Christ. My friends, when you go to work, when you are discouraged, you must think, Christ is in me. When you are tempted to sin, it's not just because you are afraid of going to hell why you don't sin. It is because 
Christ has taken up residence in you. Do you know that word that is used, that verb that is used in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17? Where Paul says that he may be strengthened, that, they, that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. Christ may dwell in their heart by faith. He uses the word to dwell, which doesn't mean a temporary dwelling, but a permanent dwelling. You see, the reason the Apostle Paul could not, could not live in sin, the reason why, because he was justified, he couldn't live in sin, was because Christ was in him. Christ had taken up permanent residence in the heart of Paul. And, and had given to him this expulsive new power to live the Christian life. And you and I, if we are to live the Christian life, must know that we are joined to Jesus, that Jesus Christ has come and set up shop and taken his home in you. It's the greatest thought, not only that Christ is for us and Christ is with us, but Christ is Make it your priority to be united to Christ. Make it your main goal in life to have Christ in you. John Calvin long ago said these very sobering words. He said, as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of mankind remains useless and of no value for us. Can I just say that again? In other words, all that Christ, if we remain outside of Christ and separated from him, all that he has done on the cross for salvation remains useless to us and of no value to us. Because all that we need and all that we must have to be saved comes from Christ. Calvin goes on to tell us, he says, if we seek strength, it is to be found in the power of Christ. If we seek purity, it is to be found in his conception. If we seek redemption, it is to be found in his passion. If we seek acquittal, it is found in Christ's own condemnation. If we seek remission, it is to be found in the cross. If we seek satisfaction, it is to be found in his sacrifice. If we seek purification, it is to be found in his blood. If we seek life, it is to be found in his resurrection. He's saying that all spiritual graces are to be found in Christ. And it means that if you are to be truly a Christian, you must be in Christ. As long as you are outside of Christ and separated from him, you have no spiritual life. You have no salvation. Anthony Johnson said it very well. He says, look, you may have a power line running across your house. But that power line is of no value to your house unless your house is connected to it. 
and you may have Christ with all of his salvation, but he will be of no value to you unless you are connected to him, unless you have him in you and you are in him. And the question then is, how? How do I get connected to Jesus? It is by faith. Paul says, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. It must be faith in a great Savior, a faith in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. It must be faith in a personal Savior. He says, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. It is more than, it is more than required just to say Christ died for the world. It's good to say that Christ died for mankind, but you must know that Christ also died for your sins and paid for your sins. You see, you must have faith in a personal Savior who died for sinners, and because you are a sinner, you claim his death on your behalf. It must be faith in a sacrificial Savior. You see, the entire Christian life in the language of James Denny is a response to the love and sacrifice of Christ. How do you, how do you have Christ? You need him, but you only come to him by faith. How do you live? How do you live daily in union with Christ? How do you stay connected to him daily? That Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. May God help you as you go through this day that you continue to appropriate the union with Christ, the benefits that come from being in communion with him and union with him by trusting in him for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.